I want to draw your attention again to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. This wonderful and familiar resurrection passage that we read earlier. You'll find it on the inside of your sermon outline, on the, on the back of the sermon outline. The text is there, along with a few others that I will be referencing. Hear the word of the Lord. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So far the reading of God's word. And oh, the point of this passage is unmistakable. It's an easy softball lobbed into the preacher standing in the batter's box because the stunning news of this passage is to declare that Jesus Christ, who was dead, is no longer dead. He is alive. He has risen from the other side of the cross. And you, you are to go, the angel says to the women. You are to go and tell all the disciples the good news of the gospel so that the disciples can tell the good news to the whole world. Christ is alive. There is a Savior. And all who are united with Him in His death and His resurrection will live too. Good news for all the world. Take it and run, the, disciple, the, the, the angel told the women. And run they did. They went back full of fear, full of energy, full of excitement. But they went back, the other gospel writers tell us. And they find the disciples in that upper room. And they burst into the doorway with a glorious hope saying, The bliss of heaven is ours forever. Christ is risen. And I don't know about you, but that's good news to me. And so, as Al just said, one day he will face crossing that river Jordan. I will face it, and so will you. All who believe in Jesus, Jesus said, will not die but live. That's, that's the message for the church. That's the message for the whole world And yet there's something about this verse, verse 7, that grips me. Because he says, go tell the disciples. And then he says, and Peter. And for the past couple of weeks, I have not been able to get this out of my head. Why does he take this glorious news that's for the church and for the world and then just say, and Peter? And my heart has been so gripped by this moment that he just 
says these words. Why doesn't he say and Andrew or James or John? And I think if you know your Bible, you know the answer to this. And the answer is because Peter was the one who messed up big time. Peter was the one with the colossal sin that's recorded not just in the Gospel of Mark, not just in Matthew and Mark, not just in Matthew and Mark and Luke, but also in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The whole church knows of this horrible experience in Peter's life when he sins in technicolor. And you remember just a few chapters before, Mark 16, it's in the back of your program, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servants' girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow was one of them. Again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But now, for the third time, he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And, and friends, this sin is extraordinary because just if you read through the Gospel of Mark, Peter has traveled with Jesus. Day in and day out, he has lived with Jesus. He has talked with Jesus. He boasted, Jesus, even if all fall away, I will never fall away. And then the rooster crowed. We are told, verse 72, immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him before the rooster crows twice. You will disown me three times. And to make it worse, in Luke 22, it tells us there in the house of Caiaphas, Caiaphas, as Peter is in the doorway calling down curses on himself, and he denies it, and the rooster crows. He lifts his eyes, and it says immediately, Jesus looked right at Peter. Oh, what a moment. What an awful moment moment that was. I think he was stunned, don't you? I did it. I actually did it. I denied him. I walked on water. I cast out demons in his name. I saw him transfigured in glory and heard the voice of God from heaven declare him as the Son of God. He looked me right in the eye and he warned me and I looked him right back in the eye and I said, I will never deny you. So verse 72 tells us, and he broke down and wept. And I think that the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter. Because Peter represents every man. 
Peter represents every woman. Peter represents every person who knows their own failure, their own sin, their own rebellion. And he goes out, and it says he weeps bitterly. He is alone. And Peter becomes, Peter becomes the example for us of the fallen human condition. You can fill in the blanks in your sermon outline if you want. What are those problems of the fallen human condition? The first is bitter isolation at the discovery and the disappointment in yourself. The second is guilt and shame. The third is weakness. And the fourth is the fear of death. Think about these things pressing in on Peter. He wept bitterly. Why? Because there were no excuses. (laughs) Because now there's nobody else to blame. Proverbs 14, verse 10, a very interesting passage of the Bible. It says that each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can share its joy. And what, what the proverb is saying is that there is an isolation in bitterness. And even if you have a sympathetic friend or, or, or a mother or somebody who, who you know loves you, nonetheless, when you experience that disappointment in yourself, you feel it. And you feel alone. What the, the, the philosophers, especially the despairing French existentialist philosophers, Kafka and Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, they, they capture in their, their morbid novels, they capture this sense of bitter isolation that everyone has. And Peter is an example of it as he weeps bitterly. And Pastor Martin has told us this is, this is located in this sense of feeling unwelcome and uneasy with yourself because all the way back to Adam and Eve, you are unwelcome and expelled from the presence of God because of your sin. And, and there is an unease and a loneliness that every one of us has felt. Have you ever been in a mall, a crowded mall, and felt lonely? Have you ever been in a stadium filled with people and felt lonely? Have you ever had a sense of shame, isolation? But the resurrection of Jesus Christ begins something new in Peter's life. And when that that angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter, it teaches us that Jesus Christ will not leave Peter alone. It teaches us that Jesus Christ will not leave you alone. And the command to go tell people, Peter, is just the the first initial movement of the resurrected Christ to pursue his people. And I love this, and I want you to know this today. His love is not just general. Sure, we preach the free offer of the gospel to the whole world, but the gospel comes to people with a name. It comes to you with a name. Do you have a name? I want you to hear the voice of God saying your name today. You didn't just wake up and get driven to this room by accident. I promise you, you didn't. God summoned you here. God brought you here. Not because I'm great or this church is so great. He just brought you to here. And listen, that His love is particular. It is particularized. 
And he attaches his love as he goes after Peter. He won't leave him to suffer. I, I remember meeting a man named Harvey Kahn, one of the great missionaries to Korea. And Harvey Kahn used to preach to the poor and the broken people. He was a large man, but he would go, he would go into the brothels and he would preach to the women who were trapped in the sex trade, enslaved, really, there in the 1950s, and he would preach to them. And he said, I didn't just say, well, Jesus has love uh, for, for sinners, so, so come to him. He says, I would go into them and I would preach to them. Listen now to the voice of God calling you to get up and leave this terrible place. Listen for the voice of the Lord to come after you and to bring you out of your bondage, this, this hopelessness that I know you have. The Lord knows that you are abused. The Lord knows that you are being used. He knows. And some of you today are going to hear His voice. We have the church outside waiting to receive you, and He just wants you to get up. If you hear His voice, you get up and come. He would preach about Jesus who said there were a hundred sheep and 99 of them were in the sheep pen. But one was lost. And what did Jesus say would happen? That the Savior would go after that particular sheep and find that sheep and gather the sheep in His arms and bring that one back. Do you hear his voice? Have you known the voice of Jesus saying your name? He loves you so much like he loved Peter. Peter is you. He loves you. He summons you. And Harvey Kahn said some of those women would get up and some of them would stay. Some wouldn't. But those that did heard his voice, his electing summoning call, lifted them out and drew them to himself. And I don't know, but as those women came into the to the to room with the disciples, and they said, He's risen! And, oh, oh, he told us. And Peter, he told us to tell you, too. Can you picture Peter sitting there with his face in his hands? And they say, and oh, Peter, his head snaps up. Me? He, he spoke of, of me? Yes, you. Christianity is the only religion where God pursues us. All the other religions, you know, try your best to be better. Do these things and do that thing, so try and seek after God. But our religion, Christianity, is a religion of a pursuing God who goes after the Lamb, and He's after you. He's after you. He will, he's, Jesus said, I will never leave you. Or forsake you. Now, there's a deeper problem that Peter has, isn't there? And that's point number two. It's our problem of guilt and shame. And the betrayal of Peter, it brings such immense guilt and shame to him. Again, think about that moment when the Lord looked at him and their eyes met. Everything about Peter's sin makes it even worse, doesn't it? It was public sin. 
It was in the papers, as it were, you know. It was public sin. It was repeated sin. It wasn't just once. It was repeated sin. It was vehement sin. I mean, his energy was in it. He was really going for it. And making it worse, he was a leader. He was warned. And he boasted that he would never do it. All these things just make the sin so much worse, doesn't it? Guilt. Guilt. What is guilt? Guilt is recognizing that I have done something wrong. And guilt is a painful emotion. But guilt is also a helpful emotion. Because guilt alerts us to our violation of God's holy standards. Yeah, a lot of us do our best to suppress our guilt. And I don't know how you deal with yours, but, but when the Holy Spirit is involved in bringing conviction, guilt is actually a very helpful emotion because it alerts us that we have transgressed God's law. But it's painful because if you've ever stood in front of a judge and the judge says, how do you plead? And you had to say, guilty, your honor. That is a painful moment. And it brings shame. What is shame? If you think about it, shame is one of the worst social experiences that humans can have. And Peter is now full of shame. When you are ashamed because of public humiliation, what happens to you? One of two things usually happens to the person who's ashamed. The first is that everybody else says, I don't want to be around you. And again, the isolation is worse. And you know what I'm talking about. Your friends aren't really your friends anymore. And, and uh, they don't want to be associated. They don't want to be around you. Or, and maybe this is worse, there's a group of people who pile on, the piling on experience of the person who's guilty. And you see it in the media. They mock and neighbors gossip and, and they put you down. Some of us grew up in shame-driven families. We did. Some of you grew up, not all of you, but many of you grew up with parents. And their parenting style was essentially to control you by means of ridicule and humiliation, sometimes even couched in terms of Christian righteousness. But, oh, Christian parents can sometimes be so driven to, to manage and control by humiliation and shame. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And maybe, what if your parent had been standing in the shoes of Jesus at that moment when he turned and looked at Peter, what would their eyes have said? Or if you're the kind of person who just naturally shames and ridicules other people, what would your eyes have said? How could you? I'm so disappointed in you. You promised, and now look what you did. You have let me down. Our relationship is finished. Some of you have heard those words. Some of you have said those words.
hearts. And we are often driven in our sinful condition to this humiliating and of shaming of other people or it happens to us. But do you know what the resurrection of Jesus means for Peter? Jesus does not run away from Peter. We just saw that. But he runs to Peter. And Jesus does not pile on Peter. But Jesus forgives Peter. I don't know. Did he remember that conversation they had? Remember when Peter said, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive someone when they sin against me? Do you remember that conversation Peter had with Jesus? How many times? And Peter was feeling quite generous and quite righteous. He says, how many times? Seven times? What did Jesus say? Not seven times, but 70 times seven times. Peter's blown away by the forgiveness that Jesus talks about. But right now, Peter hears Jesus say, I forgive you. And it's not abstract anymore. It's not practical theology anymore. Peter is forgiven. And I've been just studying Peter's sermons in the book of Acts just to see where does the resurrection fit in all of this. And in Acts 5 verse 30, Peter proclaims to the world, God exalted him that he might give repentance and forgiveness to his people. Peter's so excited about the resurrection, giving forgiveness to people. Because you see what the resurrection of Jesus does is it takes the death, the atoning death of Jesus, and it stamps valid upon it. It validates the atoning sacrifice of Christ. What Jesus has done on the cross is now declared to be acceptable to the Father. And I will tell you, Peter revels in this. Our Savior is a God of second chances and of third chances and of a hundred and third chances. A couple months ago, I sinned against my wife. And it was awful. And I had no more excuses. And I had no one else to blame. And I was guilty. And I was ashamed. So I said to her, I need to ask you to forgive me. And she said, I forgive you. How do you think I felt? She was like Jesus to me. How do you think Peter felt as Jesus restores him Christianity is a religion of grace. Everybody else is how you improve yourself and how you keep this law and that law. But our gospel is a gospel of grace. And we stand in the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Do you? Do you? Yes. Believe it. He forgives you. But now, 
Thirdly, Peter must be very acutely aware of his own weakness. The resurrection solves the problem of weakness. You see, Peter thought he could be strong. He thought he would keep his boast, but he couldn't. And some of you are here today, and you are pretty self-assured. Your parents raised you to be strong and confident, and that's the American way to be strong and confident. Some of you are pretty self-assured. I'm, I've got it together. But if you are honest, and today I pray you would be honest, if you are honest, you know that the strength to love God with all your heart and soul and mind, the strength to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, the strength to forgive those who sin against you, the strength to resist temptation. Are you up for that? Peter wasn't, and he learned it the hard way. But what about you? Again, Christianity is so different. Christianity is saying that if you want to be strong, you must first know that you are weak. Hmm. Peter learned his weakness, but he also had the resurrected Jesus who came after him. And, and Paul writes in Philippians 4.13, Now I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Strength comes not from the inside and just my own personal self-discipline. Strength comes from Him. And there is this amazing passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul is saying in verse 8, we want you to know about the hardships we are suffering, that we were under great pressure. Does anybody here feel pressure? In their life, pressure that presses down on you. He said, we felt, even felt the sentence of death. And we despaired even of life. But this happened that we might not... Now listen carefully to this. This pressure that I feel, this heartache, this upset. I'm so upset, all these things that are going wrong. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who... Raises the dead. Here it is. The resurrection. Do you need strength? Christ is raised from the dead. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I open my soul to Him. Have you done this? Have you acknowledged your weakness and said, Lord, I rely on you now for strength? But you know... The deepest problem that Peter faced, and it's the deepest problem that we all face, it is the fear of death. Why would Peter have denied Jesus that night? It's because he knew Jesus was about to die. The mob was going to carry him away, and to be associated with Jesus meant the mob would take you too. And even though he said in the safety of the upper room, I'll be faithful to death. When that moment comes, that instinct for self-preservation runs real deep because every one of us secretly and occasionally in the surface of our consciousness says, what's going to happen when I die? 
And I'm not too excited about finding out. Death, the Bible says, is the great enemy. Death is the last enemy. But Peter meets the resurrected Christ. And I told you about his sermons. You just read his sermons. In Acts 2, when Peter's preaching that inaugural sermon, he says this. He says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to hold him. And so he says, believe and live. Yes, the the problem of death is solved by the resurrection of the one who died for you. (laughs) You don't have to fear death, Christian. You don't have to fear death. Death is a terrible enemy. Death is the last enemy. Paul calls it the great enemy, but you do not have to fear death. Because you are in union. You are in by faith joined to him who is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. Do you believe this today? I pray you believe. believe. It is true in space and time in history. Jesus rose from the dead. So Easter solves these problems that we all have. Maybe you're here today and you said, bitter isolation, that's me. I'm just disappointed with who I am. Who could love me? And the answer Peter learned was Jesus loves him and Jesus loves you. You say, my track record of guilt and shame, if you only knew, Jesus forgives. Jesus forgives you. Come to him. You say, I'm just weak, I'm weary. I'm weary. I just need to be made new. I need strength. You come to Jesus, for Jesus meets with Peter at the end. Remember on the shore, Peter's out on the, on the boat, and they see Jesus cooking, the resurrected Jesus cooking fish, <laughs> making breakfast for the fishermen. And before Peter, he meets the Lord on the sea, and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Remember that story, but not this time. What does Peter do when someone says, it's the Lord? It says he gathers up his robe and he jumps out of the boat into the water and splashes up on the sand. Can't wait to be with him. Because Jesus is alive. Come, broken and weary, frozen with shame, bearing your guilt. Come, come to him and hear him say, I love you. Let's pray. Our Father, we would join your, your people around the world today and we would shake off our guilty fears. And we would agree with the angel. Yes, he is alive. And this message is not just for the church in abstract and the church in general, but as you said, go tell Peter. Now today, you say, go tell David, Mary. Go tell uh, Martha and go tell John. Go tell Anne. Go tell Peter. Tell Lou. Go tell them. 
He is risen. And so, Lord, we come in our weakness. We come asking you to make us new. We come asking you to send us out of this place full of joy and hope and confidence that you are our Savior and our strength. For anyone who would say, well, this is my first time to think like this, maybe that's because you heard his voice today. As he said, Peter, he said, now your name to you. As Harvey preached to the women in the brothel, you learned that his love for you is particularized. It falls on your head. And you say, I, I, in spite of myself, I believe. Well, if that's you, then we celebrate your new birth today and your new life. and want to encourage you in that. So, Lord Jesus, receive us and send us out of here full of joy. Make us new this day. In Jesus' name, amen.